The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast, the podcast where we bring up-to-date historical research to you in an accessible and digestible way. I'm Jackson, I'm your host, and in today's episode, I speak to historian and author Nicholas Morton all about his brand new book, The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I learned so much from Nick as we touched on of course, the Mongols, the Crusader states, and the other empires that were were within that medieval Near East region. I know you're going to love listening to this one. This is a topic that is often not touched upon in our Western educational system. So I know you're going to enjoy it, and I'm sure you're going to love listening to Nick. So without further ado, I leave you to Nick. So hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. Today we are talking to historian, author, Nicholas Morton, who is the course leader for history at Nottingham Trent University, about his latest book, The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Middle East. How are you doing today, Nick? Hi, yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. No, I'm really I'm really excited to have you on. You know, I really enjoyed your book and I think our listeners are going to enjoy this conversation we're about to have on, on your book. I, w- I wanted to ask you, I ask this question to every single guest I have on the podcast, and there's always such interesting answers to this. So what was the inspiration for writing your book? So, I mean, my specialism is the Near East um, in the 12th and 13th century. And what people tend to do is to study one particular society or civilization in the Near East for any given period in those centuries. So they might study the Byzantine Empire or Saladin's Ayyubid Empire or the Crusader States. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to try and write a history that drew all those elements together so that you can see not just how each individual state or society, how their history progresses, but you begin to see the linkages, just how much they build off each other, how much the actions of one affects the other. And so you build a broader political ecosystem for the entire region. And I want to centre that on the Mongol invasions, because the Mongols invade the Near East, just as they invade pretty much every other part of um, Eurasia in a series of invasions, and it changes everything. Uh, And so I thought, let's write a history of the Mongol invasions, not just from the Mongols' perspective, although they're in there too, but let's look at the history of the Mongol invasions from the perspectives of the various civilizations on their line of advance. How did they respond to um, the Mongol advance? How did they try and survive? And then the bigger question of in that kind of environment where it's very military, it's very brutal, there's a lot of fighting going on, who survives and who doesn't? And that's a much bigger question, I think, that I was fascinated to explore because it does raise the question, what types of community can weather that kind of storm and which will fall by the wayside. I, I really like that answer. I like the 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 desire to kind of bring in a more global or more global perspective on on that region because I think in, in the West here, particularly in England, we have a very Western Christendom idea of that region uh, centered around Jerusalem. And I think it's great that we're looking at these other civilizations that we don't tend to to look at in in. British history lessons. Um, Absolutely. And and often many histories of the Crusades, they'll focus on the Crusades themselves with only some reference to the other societies um, in the Near East. I wanted to write a history of the Near East, which includes the Crusader states. They're there, they're present, they have a role to play, but they're just one piece of the jigsaw against a much broader panorama of events taking place across the entire region. I, I like that metaphor that you just used there as well, the jigsaw. I think that really sums up this region in this in this period. And I want to look at one piece of that jigsaw. We have a lot of conceptions about or, or misconceptions about what the Mongols were like and who they were. So I want to ask you that question, who were the Mongols and, and why are they important? The easiest way to explain that is, this is an oversimplification, but it does broadly hold true. And that is, you have the enormous Asian continent. And 
particularly around the coastal margins of the continent, you have societies like well, obvious ones being China or India or Islamic Persia in the Near East, the Byzantine Empire, and then in the far west, Western Christendom. But there around the margins of the continent, in the centre, in Central Asia, you have enormous areas of um, stepland, step flat grassland. Now, there are forests, there are mountain ranges. It's, it's not purely that, but nonetheless, there's a lot of grazing ground. And this sets up a dynamic that defines world history for thousands of years. And that is in the Central Asian regions, you have large numbers of nomadic peoples who move their flocks and herds from one grazing ground to another. And normally they do it very peacefully. And they might fight the occasional war against a neighboring nomadic community. But life carries on, except when it doesn't. Um, because from time to time, these nomadic societies form a confederation and then make war against one of the agricultural societies around their boundary. That's why the Chinese have the Great Wall of China. That's why the Muslim world has a large number of fortress cities along the line of the Oxus River. And, well, Western Christendom has very thick deciduous woodland, which can sometimes deter nomads because they can't graze their animals in that kind of terrain. But there is this dynamic, and it is an oversimplification, but what we're looking at with the Mongol invasions is the largest and most effective of those confederations ever formed at any point in history. Because the Mongols don't just invade one region or across one frontier, they cross all of them. They subjugate China, most of the Muslim world, but not all of it, parts of um, the eastern borders of, of Christendom and the entirety of the steppe pretty much up to the um, thick coniferous uh, forests in the far north. So the Mongols create a huge land empire and it comes about through a confederation of nomadic peoples. The Mongols or Moals are one particular group or nomadic community but they grow as they conquer their neighbours and then draw them into this broader concept of the Mongol people. And in fact, one of the Mongols' great strengths is that when they conquer um, societies, particularly societies they want to incorporate, they then require the fighters and families of those societies to become Mongols. So from that time onwards, they are Mongols. They live, they dress, they eat as Mongols. That is who they are. And so in many ways, with every victory, the Mongol Empire just gets bigger, stronger and more numerous as it goes on, which is a very effective instrument of conquest. But that's just the Mongols sort of as a military people. The Mongols are incredibly sophisticated. Um, their society is nomadic and it operates um, around huge wagon cities. And so imagine a wagon and then make it really big. So the axles of these wagons are said by one commentator to have been as thick as ships' masts. They're huge. And a, Mong a large Mongol wagon city will not just comprise of 20 or 30 dainty wagons. Think of 10,000 wagons and spread them across the entire landscape. Mongol wagon cities can take days to cross from one side to the other. And at the centre of that, you've got the wagons of the leading Mongol elites of that particular settlement. And then the wagons of their wives and their bodyguards. And then beyond that wagon city perimeter, you've then got vast areas grazed by their herds and flocks. And the consequence is you have a very complex, very mobile civilization, which lends itself very well to conflict. And yet the other dimension to this, of course, is the Mongols' culture. And they have a very rich and sophisticated culture in terms of their beliefs. They believe in not really a sky god, but a, a sky spiritual power called Tengri. And the Mongols believe, or came to believe, under their leader Temujin, um, aka Chinggis Khan or Genghis Khan, as he's often known, um, that they believed that in 1206, Temujin was given a mandate from the eternal sky, from Tengri, to rule the entirety of the planet. And they set about doing it. And it's one of the most notable features that this 
will have not have seemed for many years to be empty words because for decades it seemed very likely the Mongols were absolutely serious and actually very likely to fulfil that that ambition, planetary conquest, the whole lot, um, perhaps minus South, South and North America because, of course, they're not known at this particular moment, but everything else because they're conquering the entire Eurasian continent. To be fair, they didn't get as far as Africa, but Eurasia falls almost in its entirety. It's, you know, it's it's so fascinating to see that conflict is built into that culture in terms of how it expands, but also in, in terms of their spiritual beliefs as well. And and with conflict being that one of their central tenets of, of your book and, and of their culture, I, I want to kind of explore that a little bit more. You know, here in the Western sense, particularly in Europe, we 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 see conflict and soldiers and war and forces as being, you know, metal armor, often horses, swords, bow and arrows. You know, how different are Mongol forces to European forces then? Sure. So, yeah, the Mongols fight in very different ways to agricultural civilizations. Um, in agricultural civilizations, you've probably got one fighter for about... 20, 30, 40 farmers. Uh, and the point is that those farmers don't typically fight. They might be called upon to fight in defence of their local town or perhaps as a sort of militia in times of you know acute need. But for the most part, those farmers will be expected to produce taxes, which will then go to a central point, whether that's the nearest town or the place where a local emir or lord lives. And then those taxes will then support that local lord who will then raise, be able to afford chainmail armour, a war horse, the expensive trappings of an elite warrior, and perhaps a handful of infantry. But the point is that fighters are a minority and they're expensive. They need lots of equipment and that equipment doesn't come cheap. And so these societies tend to produce very well equipped, but quite small armies and the other problem with agricultural societies is that it, they, they can bring a certain amount of food with them. But of course, this is pre-tinned food. The food's not going to last for very long. Uh, even if you have plenty of it, it's going to go off fairly quickly. And there are things you can do about that. But basically, armies depend on long wagon trains that arrive fairly routinely, bringing munitions, food and other resources to feed these to feed these knights or cavalry or infantry, to provide them with food, to provide the horses with horseshoes and all the kit and stuff they need to make that work. And that creates a series of vulnerabilities that steppe armies simply don't have. Mongol society, all men fight, and they don't have to be paid either. They'll appreciate the ability to kick to collect plunder, but there's no requirement for salaries. This is It's in the culture. This is how they conduct themselves and some women fight too and so they can raise huge armies on quite a slender population and historically people have spoken about the mongol hordes as if they are enormously this enormously numerous people in fact estimates are that mongols weren't actually that numerous at all it's just that when all their members of a mongol society male members of society fight and some women the size of armies you can raise is huge, even with a very slender population. And there are other advantages too. Not only do you all fight, but the, as I mentioned, the entire society is mobile. So if you want to conquer a region, you just move there. And that means you bring your flocks and herds with you. And so you've got your food, you've got your resources where you need them to be. You don't have to have long wagon trains bringing resources from a city 300 miles away. You can just simply collect your food from your your flocks of goats or sheep or whatever animals you have. And we even hear of some Mongols who, in time of need, will bloodlet from their horses and drink that blood, and that will sustain them. Incredibly hardy society, unlike agricultural society where people like their comforts, typically. So... These are advantages, but it goes further than that. Because the Mongols' armies are all mounted, and because Mongols are born and raised in the saddle, they're very effective warriors. They don't necessarily need much training. They can shoot from an early age. They're raised to it. And they conduct huge, large-scale hunts from an early age, which lend themselves very neatly to the battlefield. So it's there. It's in the culture. They're ready for conquest. 
even if they're not conducting a conquest at that particular moment in time. It's just a question of them doing so. And because they're all mounted, that means they can cut those wagon trains of the slow-moving agricultural societies really easily, isolate them and destroy them. So it's one of the, the big revelations of studying steppe societies from a military perspective. It's just how much more effective militarily they are than almost anyone else. People tend to think that because in the long run, agricultural societies gained the geopolitical upper hand, if you like, with their trains and weapon and advanced gunpowder weapons and aeroplanes, that therefore there's almost something inevitable about this. Agricultural societies always had the upper hand. They didn't. Not until they could produce advanced gunpowder weapons. Until then, nomadic armies were often bigger, more effective and faster moving. And in fact, it's one of the conclusions I've drawn about the Crusades as a whole. Part of the reason why the Crusader states couldn't survive in the long term is because they couldn't hold out against predominantly nomadic enemies for which they were very ill-suited. The Mongol structure, the template of conquest they've got, is enormously effective. And it's set up to succeed and it gets bigger as it succeeds, all of which makes it something that's very hard to stop. You can certainly see the, the advantages, particularly in that region as well, uh, for the Mongols and what's allowed them to to go on such a successful conquest and 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 be so successful in conflict in this in this region, particularly against some of those more agricultural societies and those Crusader states, as you mentioned. Now, I want I want to go back to to Genghis Khan's uh, spiritual given right uh, for con- conquest and and world domination that goes through the Mongol culture and, and they thoroughly believe in. So in, in, in the late 1220s, the Mongols are expanding and, and Jalal al-Din is, is one of those men who resisted the Mongols. How, how important is Jalal al-Din then in the, in the fight against the Mongols and what, what happens to him? Sure. So um, the origins of this is that as the Mongols begin to expand into northern China and along the margins of northern China, they come into contact with a large empire called the Khwarazmian Empire, which encompasses uh, Persia, that's modern-day Iran, as well as many um, sort of neighbouring territories. It's a huge empire. And the governor of a town called Utra on the borders of the Khwarazmian Empire, he seizes and kills a caravan of Mongol merchants. The Mongols then arrive in force and invade the Khwarazmian Empire immediately afterwards. There's lots of questions around that, but that is basically what happens. And when the Mongols invade the Khwarazmian Empire, which starts in 1219, they are very successful very quickly. And the empire's ruler decides to take the defensive precaution of rather than trying to meet the Mongols in battle, he's going to divide up the Khwarazmian army and station the army's contingents in the various cities along the frontier. And this is a ruinous strategy because the Mongols can then deal with them one by one. But the ruler's son, called Jalal al-Din, he's much more front-footed. He tries to go out and meet the Mongols in battle, and for a time, he's very successful. And so he does actually make the principle, he does show the principle, the Mongols can be defeated. And this isn't something that people are particularly used to because the Mongols have been conquering everywhere and virtually no one's been stopping them. But for a brief time, Jalal al-Din does manage to block the Mongols as they invade into what's going to be Afghanistan. Um, But the Mongols know very well, they realise the significance of this. So once they start to lose, they just submerge the area where Jalal al-Din is uh, offering defence with troops and they eventually force Jalal al-Din to take refuge in North India um, as they begin to drive his armies off out, out, of, out of his empire. So he does begin to offer resistance. So he's an interesting person in that sense. And soon afterwards, he moves to what's left of the Khwarazmian Empire in what today be modern-day Western Iran, Eastern Iraq. And he carries on offering resistance. So he's an interesting figure. He, he doesn't ultimately manage to hold the Mongols back, but he does show that it can be done. It's, you know, it's, it's fascinating that the the Mongols recognised the significance of someone being able to resist them and be successful in that resistance and then create a plan for themselves to be able to, to neutralise that. And something that you see through through that neutralisation, that threat, is the exacerbation of, a, of fear of the Mongols. 
Uh, and, and I found that fear was a big, a big theme in your book. So, you know, we've just had Jalal al-Din attempt to resist. I want to know how other empires attempt to resist and fight the Mongols and the threat that they pose. Because, you know, as we've just mentioned, a lot of places and a lot of people are very afraid of this nomadic people and these, these massive armies. When the Mongols start to, re- start to attack the countries around their perimeter, some resist. Some put up a fight, and they're beaten, by and large. And the Mongols do it again, and again, and they carry on doing it another 12 times. And the problem is that once you get to a stage where everyone's losing, even the really powerful societies with large armies, fortress cities, and all the advantages that brings, they're still losing. And so you start to find there's a multiplier effect, which is that people begin to realise that resistance just isn't going to work. And in that environment, armies will start to edge away from the battlefield, even before the Mongols have crossed the horizon. They don't want to fight. Why would you fight if you know you're going to lose? And some societies wait to be invaded and try and put up some resistance, and they normally get overthrown. But by the time you get to about the 1240s, you start to get a phenomenon, which is that societies go to the Mongols and capitulate without having been invaded, particularly small societies, because there's simply no point to act otherwise. Why put up a fight? Yes, you might go down in the annals of your people's history as a a great warrior who went down fighting, but that's not going to be much consolation to you or your own people if they then get slaughtered much better to just submit, just 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 give up and try and pursue a future for yourself as a Mongol client state. Because the Mongols, not surprisingly, they were very enthusiastic about peoples who wanted to submit without a fight, and why wouldn't you be? So the basic rule of thumb goes like this. If you resist, and it's not just resisting Mongol invasions, from a Mongol perspective, you're resisting the truth. The truth is the Mongols do have a worldwide given right to rule all human civilization. And so if you resist that mission, you're not just offering resistance to a Mongol invasion army. You are denying the spiritual truth, and that is unacceptable. And so societies that put up a fight, even just if it's just token resistance, They have failed to recognise that truth, and it is therefore incumbent on them to face the consequences, and those consequences are often exceptionally brutal. So that's one option. The Mongols make sure that anyone who resists will feel it. On the other hand, if you submit to the Mongols and you pay, at the very least, lip service to, yes, we do recognise you have a a spiritual right to rule the planet in in recognition of that right, we therefore submit to you, we accept you as our overlords, we will pay tribute to you on an annual basis. This is all good. This is desirable. People are understanding, or at least pretending to understand, that that truth, the Mongols' mission, and they're giving the Mongols what they want. So the Mongols will be much more lenient. And so some of these client states aren't even required to hold a Mongol garrison. They can just carry on more or less independent, provided they pay tribute and send a contingent of troops to join the Mongol army. So it's actually a very, very strong incentive to do nothing. And this is how fear works, because it it incentivizes early submission, it disincentivizes resistance. And the the more that fear turns to terror, the more that's going to happen. I mean, I can can certainly understand, you know, if if you're watching empire by nation, by city, by society collapse as you go along... You know, I can I can certainly understand those troops edging away from the battlefield as the Mongols approach. It's it's certainly not something you would you would want to see come across the horizon. So yeah, yeah, I, I understand. And, and the Mongols encourage unsubmitted societies to send envoys to them, and this just compounds the situation. These envoys, we have reports from them. They have to go out to the Mongol capital, but to go, get to the Mongol capital, they've got to cross all the recently conquered territory. And they find all these deserted villages and they find heaped piles of um, corpses and they meet with terrified refugees. And that does more than enough work for the Mongol propaganda machine. The Mongols hardly have to do anything 
because these people will then return back and report what they've seen. And needless to say, this is not good news to the few societies that still remain independent. I think that's I think that's really effective propaganda there. Uh, you know, it further disincentivizes that future resistance as well. Now, I want I want to go back to that world domination belief uh, or the truth, as you mentioned. And in in the twelve thirties, the Mongols begin to push into Europe through Hungary, which yeah. is a, a an outstanding achievement to be able to reach Hungary as it is. But how does Europe uh, and Western Christendom, because at this point. Christendom's kind of split on the the Great Schism, as some call it. How does Europe and Western Christendom respond to this? Yeah, Western Christendom is not in good shape to fend off the Mongols. Um, as you mentioned, there's a big conflict between it's the, between the German Emperor Frederick II and um, the papacy in Rome, uh, and plenty of other wars going on at the same time. And the papacy in the 1240s sends out. Um, envoys to the Mongols and the envoys come back and they're basically saying look this isn't going to work we don't have anything we can throw at them the only thing that the Mongols were apparently frightened of when it came to Western Christendom was crossbows didn't have them or at least they did have them but you can't reload a crossbow on horseback so it's not as effective for them and for many years there is real fear because people are beginning to beginning to realize that these people are not going to be stopped and there's nothing in Western Christendom that can really be thrown at them. The only thing they've really got in their favour is the fact that Western Christendom is very thickly wooded and therefore not suitable for the Mongols' herds, which is some consolation. But yeah, when the Mongols invade Hungary and Poland, it's not because they don't leave because they're defeated in battle. They leave. It's not, people aren't quite sure why they left. Some people say it's because of the forests. Some people say it's because they learnt of the death of the Great Khan in Mongolia and therefore pulled out. But people were very aware the Mongols had not been driven out at the point of a sword. There was nothing stopping them coming back again. And so there is tremendous fear. And one of the stories I find interesting about this is the story of the fishing folk in Great Yarmouth, believe it or not, um, in England. And the fishing folk in Great Yarmouth in the 1240s or in one year in the 1240s, um, they pulled in an enormous catch of herring. Bear with me. This is going somewhere. Um, so this is good news for them. They can sell the herring make and make a very good profit that year. All good news. Except the merchants they typically sell the herring to, who come from the Baltic Sea region, just don't arrive. They don't want to buy it. That's not because they don't want to buy herring. They do. But they can't because they're so afraid of an imminent Mongol invasion that they don't feel they can be away from home for as long as it would take to get ships out to Great Yarmouth and back again. And so this is just one of a million, a billion side effects and so long distance, long range impacts. The Mongols are changing so much, it's impacting commercial networks, family networks, and then of course, the configuration of an entire continent. It's changing a lot. And people really don't feel as much they can do about it in Western Christendom, and they're probably right. It's it's really interesting to see the knock-on effects of an empire of a people that we don't traditionally think of in Western uh, Western history, and, and even affecting a town which is a great town, affecting Great Yarmouth. <laughs> uh, it's it's not something you would really consider, and it's really interesting to see those ripple effects go across yeah. not just mainland Europe but onto uh, the British Isles as well. Now, I want to I want to carry on in twelve forties because I think the twelve forties is such a fascinating decade that you've yeah. you've detailed in your book, and there's further conflict in that decade, and there's that conflict is between the Muslims and the Christians uh, around Jerusalem, which sees Jerusalem fall, which is a massive moment uh, in in history. But how does this affect the Ayyubids and the Crusaders' states' ability to deal with the Mongols? Sure. So. Yeah, in the sort of the coastal regions of the Eastern Mediterranean, you have three, well, you've got four if you include Cyprus, crusader states. They're territories um, controlled by dynasties and, and communities from Western Christendom. And they were originally founded during the first, and in the case of Cyprus, the third crusade. And they're strung out along the coast of the Levant. And in 1229, um, during the crusade of Emperor Frederick II, they regained control over Jerusalem. But just inland from the Crusader states, 
is a huge empire called the Ayyubid Empire, named after Saladin's father, Ayyub, the empire itself being founded by Saladin. And by this stage, Saladin, um, Saladin died many decades previously, and it's being ruled by his heirs. And so these heirs fight amongst themselves the whole time. And in this case, the ruler of Damascus, one, of, one member of the Ayyubid family, is fighting against the ruler of Egypt, another member of the Ayyubid family. And this is very common. The Ayyubids fight against themselves the, uh, among themselves the whole time. But that particular ecosystem, if you like, that, that, that ecosystem, including the Crusader states and the Ayyubid Empire, that's about to change because uh, I need to go back to the Khwarazmian Empire I mentioned. Because in 1230, the Khwarazmian Empire is completely overthrown. The last resistance shown by Jalal al-Din is surmounted by the Mongol invaders, who then come in and take over the entire region, but don't push on as far as the Ayyubid Empire. And inevitably, given an invasion on that scale, tens of thousands of refugees flee into the Ayyubid Empire and into the Crusader States, seeking refuge. But among those refugees is a large force of 10,000 Khwarazmian warriors. And they initially take refuge in Anatolia, that's modern-day Turkey. And then they push south. And they want two things. They want refuge from the Mongols and they want a new home. And the Sultan in Egypt is willing to give that to them. But of course, he's not going to give it for free. He wants, in return, the support of 10,000 battle-hardened Khwarazmian warriors. And so he makes an agreement with the Khwarazmians. If you will help to fight against my main enemy, not the Crusader States, but his rival in Damascus, then, then you can come and join me in my empire. And so the Khwarazmians begin to move south, and this panics the ruler of Damascus, who realises he's about to be very seriously outnumbered by the forces of Egypt, plus the forces of the Khwarazmians. And so he then reaches out to the largest of the Crusader states, called the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and says, basically, if you don't make an alliance with me, then the Egyptians and the Khwarazmians will roll over my territories in Damascus, and then they'll turn on you. And so a defensive alliance is made between Damascus and the Kingdom of Jerusalem. So you've got two power blocks, Kingdom of Jerusalem supporting Damascus and the Khwarazmian supporting Egypt. And in and amongst all these things, the Khwarazmians move south to join forces with the Egyptian army. And en route, they take and sack Jerusalem. And this is it. This is the end of Crusader Jerusalem. The Crusaders will not get it back after this. And so it does form a pivotal moment in the history of the Crusades, history of the Crusader states, but for the Khwarazmians, it's just somewhere they attack on their route south. And then the battle lines are drawn up and these two big confederations of armies meet, and it is a resounding victory for Egypt and the Khwarazmians. The Egyptians do go on to take Damascus soon afterwards, and the Khwarazmians then invade into the Kingdom of Jerusalem. This is seen very much as being a turning point in the history of the Crusader states. And yet it's interesting because there is a, a religious element to the conflict, and yet it's also a conflict in which you have one Muslim power allied with another Muslim power fighting a Muslim power allied with a Christian power. So the battle lines are not simple. It's not just Christians fighting Muslims. The reasons for warfare, the reasons for conflict are a great deal more com complicated and actually have very little to do with interfaith antagonism. So it's it's one of the things that makes this period so interesting, really, just how complicated it is and unpicking that complexity. It's it's certainly one of the most fascinating conflicts I've ever I've ever come across. because uh, you do have those dynamics. Uh as well as that third dynamic sitting on the edge there was the Mongols. And you know, I want to move to 1252 with the reign of Khan. I'm probably going to butcher this now, Khan Monkey. Uh, and he initiates a new offensive, a new a new Mongol storm on, on multiple fronts. And, and can you tell us about these these offensives? Sure. So it's fairly traditional that on the um, 
accession to power of a new great Khan, that this then initiates a wave of new offensives, and Monk is no exception. Um, and forces begin to marshal for big offensives, and one in China, in the Near East, and ultimately um, the full-scale invasion of Western Christendom. Now, the invasions into China happen, the invasions into the Near East happen, and they happen in the Near East under Monka's brother, called Huligu. And it's during this invasion that the basic point of the invasion is to destroy everything that's left. There's only a few powers that remain independent, and he's just going to finish those off, really. And it's during this um, campaign, one of the most brutal Mongol sieges of their history, and that's the siege of Baghdad takes place. Enormous loss of life across one of the largest cities um, in the world at this time. The caliph himself is executed as part of that um, invasion. It's one of the the biggest um, acts of violence conducted by the Mongols against the Islamic world. And after that, Hulagu carries on his advance, heading towards the Ayyubid Empire. Further north, the Mongols begin are beginning to mass their forces for the full-scale invasion of Western Christendom. And no one's really in much doubt of what the, income, the outcome of that will be. But this is when it gets interesting, because the Mongols invade the Ayyubid Empire, or what's left of it, and it falls almost immediately, within within weeks. Or at least the, Mongol, the Mongols invade the Ayyubid Empire in Syria, and it falls almost immediately. But a few years before this event offensive arrived, there was a rebellion in Egypt, whereby the enslaved people who had been who were soldiers in the Ayyubid Empire called Mamluks, um, enslaved soldiers. Um, they rose in rebellion against the Ayyubids and took power for themselves. And so when the Mongols invade, Syria is still part of the Ayyubid Empire, but Egypt is now the beginnings of what will be the Mamluk Empire. And the Mamluks respond very differently to the Mongol invasion because they advance out against the Mongols and actually seek battle with them. And this all takes place in 1260. Now, it might be thought the Mamluks were about to get defeated just like everyone else has been. But in fact, that doesn't happen because Monka dies and Hulagu withdraws with most of his forces back to the Caucasus, sort of modern-day Azerbaijan sort of area. And he wants to, to pl- make sure that his voice is heard um, for the succession to, to the next great Khan. And so when the Mamluks advance out to fight the Mongols, they encounter the Mongols' garrison, but not their full army. And what's and most importantly, then they then defeat that Mongol army. They get this, as, as we've already said, this doesn't happen very much, but the Mamluks have won a big battle. And meanwhile, something even more significant happens, which is that the Mongols massing for the invasion of Western Christendom they're not impressed by Hulagu's invasion of the Near East for one very simple reason, and that is that the leader of the, um, the Mongols in Western Eurasia facing Western Christendom is from a rival branch of the Mongol ruling dynasty, and he feels he's got rights to the Near East himself. So when Hulagu comes into the Near East and takes over, he's not impressed at all. And so a civil war breaks out. Rather than invading Western Christendom, the Mongols in Western Eurasia, they move south and attack the Mongol armies in the Near East. And the Mongol armies in the Near East march up to the Caucasus Mountains to fight their Mongol kin from the north. And so what you're suddenly seeing is where two major invasion armies were poised in the north to face Western Christendom, in the south to reinvigorate the assault on the Mamluk Empire after this initial Mamluk victory, suddenly that doesn't happen and the Mongols begin to turn on themselves. There's some fabulous research done on this by Peter Jackson. But this blunts the Mongols' invasions on their two most active Western vectors. And so suddenly the invasions begin to stall. It's not the end of the invasions, but it's a turning point nonetheless. I definitely I definitely found when when reading your book that Hulagu was such a, a fascinating character. And to see those dynamics play out within the the Mongol Empire 
uh, and see how that's affecting their reputation. The idea of fear around that empire was really interesting to see it play out. But something that I saw within uh, a few Mongol uh, attacks and and some actions that Hulagu took is that the Mongols seem to have been sympathetic to to Christians, uh, particularly Eastern Christians. So why is this? Okay, so um, in in that particular invasion, there does seem to have been to be some partiality on the Mongols' part towards Christians because the wife of Hulagu, um, a very dynamic woman who had who was very much respected as a leader in her own right, she was herself um, a Christian, and so there were occasions where she persuaded Mongol leaders, including her husband, to spare Christians along their line of march. But this isn't a uniform policy for the Mongols. Their general belief is that their own spirituality, centred on that belief they have a right to rule the world, renders all other religions equal and secondary. And what I mean by that is that all religions, Buddhism, uh, Christianity, Islam, as well as all the others, they are all equal in the sense that the Mongols do accept they have spiritual power, but they are all subordinate to the Mongols' own spiritual beliefs and their own entitlement to rule the world. And so in that sense, all religions are equal, but within that very specific context. And the, context. And the Mongols actually have religious debates in their capital cities where they get people from other different religions to argue about whose faith is right or wrong or whatever, whatever it may be. Although it is notable in the long term, and certainly by the time you get to the 14th century, the Mongols themselves begin to convert to the religions of often the religions of the people who they've themselves conquered. And so in the Near East, the Mongols convert to Islam in large part, although they do retain a lot of their um, previous shamanistic practices as well. In China, the Mongols convert to Buddhism. Um, the outlier here is um, in Western Eurasia, what today be sort of parts of Eastern Europe and Russia. There, the Mongols also convert to Islam, even though actually there's a much broader um, array of religion, particularly Christianity, in that area. And I, yeah, I think it's really, really quite interesting in in terms of that dynamic. You're seeing a a woman in in a period where Western Europe doesn't doesn't particularly allow women to have political power and that much political influence. You see a woman within an empire being able to exert some influence and guarantee a more sympathetic treatment of a, a people. Yeah. Um, so, 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 yeah, I mean, in Western Western, the women can, can act as regents from time to time. In the Crusader States, there's a couple of um, queens who act as queen regnants. So they rule in their own right. Um, so you, there is some, some opportunities for authority there, although, yes, absolutely, there's not an equal playing field by any way, shape or form. Um, in terms of the Mongols, yes, very much... Um, Mongol women could play very important roles um, in leading Mongol society. Again, there's been some fabulous research done on this by various people, but it's shown that um, often it was elite Mongol women who ruled these big camp cities. So whilst men typically conducted war, it was women who who organized and managed, must have been incredibly complicated, these tens of thousands of wagons and all the various intricacies of that. And it's often during the interregnums, the period between one Mongol great Khan has died and the period often lasting for many years until the next one um, accedes to power. Often it's the wife of the previous great Khan or the senior wife of the previous great Khan who then manages the empire until the next great Khan is in power. And so, yes, Mongol can have tremendous authority. Uh, and, and once again, it's, it's really... It's really fascinating to learn about those those different elements that set the Mongols apart from their their contemporaries. Now, your book is not only about the making of empires, it's also about the breaking of empires. And, and so far we've seen the Mongols begin their expansion, become an incredibly powerful army, but also we're, we're starting to see them weaken. So how does the Mongol Empire fall apart and and what happens to it afterwards? Yeah, so 
the fracture lines are already there by this stage, really, that the Mongol Empire is turning on itself. It's huge, and it, it, it controls the better part of a continent. And the leading Mongol dynasties, often the descendants of the sons of Chinggis Khan, they begin to, or they're initially granted areas of the empire as Ulu, which is areas of the empire under their jurisdiction, basically. And increasingly, those Ulu become more like formal empires within a larger empire. And then as they begin to fight and have rivalries amongst themselves and they fight civil wars, the empire begins to turn on itself and suddenly the wars of expansion begin to grind to a halt. It doesn't explain the fall of the Mongol Empire, but it does explain why it stopped expanding. And of course, when you start doing that, then the powers who previously were living in fear of the day when the Mongol army would cross the horizon don't don't get so fearful because they're not being invaded, the threat's diminishing. And in fact, often the various factions within the Mongol Empire begin to seek external allies to support them in their own internal um, disputes. And so the, the balance of power begins to shift until eventually the Mongol Empire starts to collapse, on, collapse in its own right. And this is certainly clear in the Near East because the Mamluks, having defeated the Mongols at Ayn Jalut, continue their resistance. And 20 years later, in a, a break in the infight, the Mongols try and resume the offensive into the Mamluk Empire with a massive invasion army, which rather embarrassingly for the Mongols is then defeated by the Mamluks with a much smaller force outside the town of Homs in Syria. And really, the, the Mamluks offer substantial resistance to the Mongols in the Near East until eventually they are forced to concede a peace treaty. And that peace treaty basically acknowledges the Mongols aren't going to invade uh, Mamluk territory and the Mongol Empire is not going to get any, any further than that. And that too, it's a symbolic moment as well as a political one because it means the Mongols are almost accepting they're not going to have planetary control. They're not going to rule all human civilization. The dream begins to break apart. And then you get the outbreak of rebellions and contingents turn against each other. And suddenly, the to go back to my earlier analogy, the jigsaw of the Mongol Empire begins to break up and the pieces get smaller and smaller as rebellions and um, dynastic pretenders begin to contest over the over the centers of power and so it's a breakup really and also it's the, it's the cultural um, dimension too in China the Mongols begin to take on they take on Buddhism as I mentioned but also got many um, cultural traits familiar to Chinese culture in the Near East it's more Islamic culture and so they begin to go their own separate ways too and the empire begins to break up it's quite it's quite sad really that that's the the outcome for all of this expansion all this war that it's eventually you're witnessing the mongols fighting amongst themselves and, and bringing apart uh, bringing about their own downfall um and i, I want to kind of just push forward to 11 oh, 1335 uh with ikan abu said who dies with no successor and he's he's the leader of the Ikhanate. so how does his death why is it first of all why, why is it important and how does this affect that successor empire that successor state the Ikhanate? sure so the Ilkhanate is basically that the the branch of the mongol empire in the near east which by the 1260s or 70s is really an independent power in its own right and it carries on until as you mentioned um the death of Abu Sayyid in 1335. And the key point is that he doesn't have any children or no, 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 no sons who can take over power. And this is a problem because it, cre- it, it, it accelerates the decline of the Mongol territories in the Near East because various pretenders arise who try and claim power for themselves and it cause, causes a new wave of civil wars which only encourages future rebels or cities that want to go independence and so it accelerates this breakup so yeah it is an important moment in the collapse of the mongol position in the near east as i've uh, said throughout this episode you know there, there are so many things that are fascinating that are leading to the downfall but also leading to the rise of the mongol empire and i found that you know just talking to you today and reading your book that they're so much more important than i ever thought they were uh, so it's it's great to learn uh, learn about that. Now I have one final fun question, as I do for all the guests here <laughs> okay. on on the on the History Jackson podcast. Is one of your research specialisms is is military orders, 
So I wanted to ask you, which is your favourite military order and why? Okay, um, so yeah, military orders, Knights Templar, Knights Hospitaller, Tuesday Knights, things like that. Um, I'm not sure about favourite, but the one I find most interesting, I think, has always been the Knights Hospitaller. Um, the fact, you know, it's, it's trying to understand how an order could simultaneously devote itself to military warfare against a range of opponents, but particularly in the Near East, but also medical care at the same time. It's it's an astonishing organisation because it did conduct war for much of the 12th and 13th century, um, particularly against empires like the Ayyubid Empire, often Islamic empires. But at the same time, it also ran a hospital in Jerusalem, which offered medical care, which was free to all comers, whatever your religion. In fact, it even had regulations so that if you couldn't eat pork, you could be offered a dish in chicken instead which, of course, is there to show sensitivity to Islamic dietary requirements. It's, it's trying to understand that. How, how does an institution do both those things simultaneously? And what does it say about them that they do? So I think, for me at least, the hospitalers are the ones I find most interesting. I think, I think that's a really, really interesting answer uh, and an interesting dynamic of how to manage that. You know, are they a war? Well, they are a war and faction fighting against these people, but they're also caring for them. I think that's a great answer. So thank you for that, Nick. Now, of course, I mean, after listening to us talk about your book, our listeners are going to go and want, away and want to go away and find yeah. you and your book. So where can they find both? Um, well, the, the Mongol Storm can be purchased from um, Amazon's the most obvious one. It should also be available in um, places like Waterstones as well, I'd have thought. Um, you can buy it from the publisher's website directly if you want. So if you just write in Mongol Storm and then my name, Nicholas Morton, followed by uh, Basic Books, that's a way to find the publisher's website. You might also be interested in my YouTube channel, and the handle for that is at Medieval Near East. So a few possibilities there. And I, I will thoroughly recommend people go away and read your book because it is a great book and it really challenged some misconceptions that I had on the era and the and the, the area historically. So. Thank you very much for coming on, Nick, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening to this brand new episode of the History with Jackson podcast. If you enjoy the type of content that I create and put across here at History of Jackson, please consider subscribing to History Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help support me continue to do what I do. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of History of Jackson, and I look forward to talking to you next week where we have another great episode lined up.